It's so good to be together. So we've been on a journey. We have been learning as a church family how to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we are called to embody the kingdom of God, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And as we do those things, God advances his kingdom through us. We're empowered, gifted, filled, led by God's Holy Spirit. And yet, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, there are obstacles. There are challenges to cooperating with the Holy Spirit, to being used by God. There are things that keep us from being far from maximally cooperative, maximally used. Not one of us could say we're used as much as the Lord would desire to use us. And so we named three obstacles. We're going to name one more. We're going to make a little transition and start a a short sermon series that we're going to take through the rest of August and into September dealing with identity. And I won't say much about identity right now. I'll say it in the sermon. But if we don't know our identity, who we are, who God says we are, and I don't mean know, like I can recite what the Bible says, I mean know in my heart. Like it flows out of me because it's what I believe in the depths of my being. If we don't know that, we won't live as an agent, servant, son, daughter of God. So we're going to ha- we're going to enter a season of having our identities strengthened by the Lord as we look to his word and say, what does the Lord say about who we are? And we're going to begin that series by looking at uh, Judges chapter 6, Old Testament Judges chapter 6, the story of the calling of Gideon. Gideon's story is about four chapters long. We're just going to look at the calling of Gideon in Judges 6. Anybody have a page number for that? 379. Thank you, Teo. So the background story is that God's people have been rescued or delivered from slavery in Egypt. They've been brought through the wilderness and have entered into God's promised land for them, and they've entered a period in which they are exceedingly forgetful of the deliverance and the gifts and the inheritance God's given and who God is, and they keep turning away. And so what's happening is exactly what God told them would happen in Deuteronomy 28. He said, if you turn away from me, if you forget my covenant and you don't obey me, You will be overtaken and overrun by your enemies, and these curses you'll bring on yourself. They'll happen to you. And so, as we pick up the story, the people of Israel are living under intense persecution, so much so that every every summer after they plant crops in the spring, the Midianites will come and literally devour the land. And Israel flees into the hills and hides in the caves and lives in fear and then comes back and tries to scrape a meager subsistence living until the next spring when it happens all again. And so we're going to pick up at uh, chapter 6, verse 7. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says 
I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I'm the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you've not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The angel of the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, that's his tribe, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, Give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come and bring back my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat from an ephah of flour. He made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread place them on the rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of his staff in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. Reading of God's Word. When I was about... uh, 10 or 11 years old, my parents returned from parent-teacher interviews, and they shared with me that my music teacher had told them that she really appreciated me because I kept her humble. She said, she said that through attempting to teach me, she learned, she realized she couldn't teach everybody to sing. Yeah, 
ouch. Well, it was true. I was fairly tone deaf, and I was one of her slowest learners. But you know, something else was true, too. And that something else was that I, I really loved to sing. I loved music class. I loved choir. I loved singing. And yet, from that moment on, I began to become really self-conscious about how I sounded as I sang. And it didn't help that as I entered high school and I began to enjoy singing songs on the radio that friends would make jokes like um, they would say, Hey, who sings that song you're singing? And I would think that it was an innocent question, so I'd answer it. And then they would say, Why don't we just let them sing that song, Dave? But they would say it like they would just burn me, you know, like, "Why Why don't we just let them sing that song? Well, jokes like these, uh, you know, they might not have known it, but I already had a sense of shame around how I sounded. And so jokes like these just increased my sense of self-consciousness and shame about singing in front of other people. And so, so much so that even when I really came alive in the Lord in my late teens and I realized I loved to worship, I felt like I came alive when I worshiped. God made me to worship him. Uh, I had this incredible self-consciousness. And this conflict came because people began to encourage me and say things like, I'm really blessed to watch you worship. Or some people who stood behind me said some nice things about my singing. And I couldn't believe it at all. I I wouldn't believe it because deep down inside I had taken on and assumed this identity. I am the tone deaf, can't sing other guy. People don't want to hear me sing guy. That That was who I was. And so anything that conflicted with that just didn't fit. Our identity is uh, the collection of beliefs that we hold about ourselves, whether we can articulate them or not. In fact, I would say that much of our sense of identity is not articulated, but it's a powerful force. What we believe about ourselves is a powerful force. It's something that flows from our past into our present, and then has a profound impact on our future. And identity can be something that we choose and that we try to build, but it can also be something that's given to us. So let me give examples of both. In terms of choosing, we might desire to be liked or to, we might like a certain group of people, and so we decide, I'm going to dress like them. Right? You hang out with bikers for a while, you decided you're going to dress like the bikers. We might... We might um, talk. We might start talking like people that we really like, or we might start listening to music that pe- people we really like start listening to. And so, we this it's our way of identifying with them. There are people, there are groups that we hold in esteem, and so to identify, we begin to try to become like them. So. We do this all across life, but here's a couple of examples. We can choose to try and build our identity around our work or our workplace. And so we might say, we might uh, say, what does it mean to be the ideal teacher or janitor or counselor or homemaker, mother, ministry leader? We don't maybe articulate all this. We just deep down somewhere ask that question. Whatever it is, what does it mean to be the ideal one of that? And then we start striving for that ideal. And, and, and there's a sense in which our sense of self-worth, identity, gets attached to being and becoming in that ideal. So 
we'll say to ourselves, well, a successful blank looks like, and so I'm going to be like that. We can choose to identify with a political party or a movement or a sports team or a music scene, and then we would say, I'm a whatever, you fill in the blank. And so because I'm a, I speak this way, act this way, think this way. It's grounding our identity, again, our sense of who we are in something, someone, some movement, some set of ideas. We, it's, a, it's a way in which we choose to build our sense of self by attaching to someone or something else. Okay, so identity can be chosen, but it can also be given to us. When an adult says something like, you're a boy, boys don't cry. This powerful lie then begins to shape the identity of the young boy. You're this, and these people don't that. When an adult models disgust with a certain kind of people, and a child just assumes that's normal. A child sees the adult do it, and a child says, oh, we don't like them? We're better than them? Oh, okay, this is how we respond to those people. This is the way the world works. Adults daily shape the world and then the sense of identity of the children that are entrusted to them. We were all shaped, given a sense of identity, by the people who are influences in our life. And so we routinely grow up building our sense of self and self-worth around gender, culture, religion, family, abilities, lack of abilities, circumstances. We identify ourselves with parts of those. So we might then take on identities and say things like, well, we're poor, we're smart, we're disliked, we're strong and stubborn. How many, how many times haven't you heard someone describe their family that way? We're strong people, we're stubborn people, we're this kind of people. I'm too tall and gangly, too short, too fat, too thin, too serious, not a leader, not a speaker, too emotional, not emotional. I'm successful. I can't do anything right. I'm not necessary. I'm too fearful. I'm too critical. I'm too sensitive. I'm alone. I'm unwanted. I'm weak. I'm not enough. All statements describing us that, that um, flow out of experiences that we have and that shape our sense of self. And these narratives that we develop about ourselves can run so deep that they, that they form at the core of our identity or who we are. And when that happens, they can severely hamper our, our response to God's plan for our lives. So this struggle with identity, why am I going on about identity? Because this struggle with identity is where we find Gideon in our text this morning. Gideon's responding to a message from Almighty God by spouting his past to God's messenger. 
So God's people are oppressed and they're calling out to him. And God's heart is moved and God wants to deliver his people. And so God dispatches an angel to inform Gideon he's got a calling from God to deliver his people. And not just a calling, but an identity. So God sees something in Gideon. God calls him mighty man of valor. And Gideon hears that calling and it's like he just ignores it. It's almost like God's statement of calling and identity are too much of a shock for Gideon. He can't process it, but he's got to say something. And so he asks a question. And so the angel announces God is with you, Gideon, singular. But Gideon chooses to deflect away from himself. We do this when we're uncomfortable with what's being spoken to us. Gideon deflects away from himself to the group of Israel. And he says, why are we being routed and tormented by our enemies if God is with us? Now this is interesting. God chooses not to respond to Gideon's question at all. Sometimes God doesn't answer us because we're asking the wrong question. Sometimes God doesn't answer us because we're asking a question when a question is not called for. The angel of the Lord simply turns back to him and commands Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? So the angel of the Lord goes straight back to the heart of the matter. God has a calling for Gideon to rescue and to save Israel. He again asserts Gideon as strength. Instead of calling him mighty man of valor, he says, In this might of yours, declaring, Gideon, you have strength. It's like he's saying, in this might of yours, you've got it. Go and save Israel. And it's the second more direct command from the Lord that's all that's needed to sort of force Gideon's identity crisis out in the open. It's like that amount of pressure on him kind of, kind of pushes it up and all of a sudden he goes, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Look, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, my tribe, and I'm the least in my father's home. In other words, God, you've, you've totally got the wrong guy. You're mistaken. I'm not a mighty man of valor. I'm not a rescuer of Israel. Don't you know I'm weak? I'm really weak. I come from a weak people. How can I do this? And interestingly, the Lord doesn't deny Gideon's sense of weakness within his tribe or his clan or himself. He simply directs Gideon away from letting that define his understanding of who he is and where strength comes from. He does that this way. The Lord answers his protest with, But I shall be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. In other words, God's saying, I'm strong, and I'm with you, and I will give you my strength, and because I'm with you and I give you my strength, you will so overpower your enemies that they shall seem like only one man and you will destroy them completely. Still, Gideon bulks. We're on round three right now. God's given Gideon calling and identity. God's reaffirmed the calling 
and told him he's got strength and commanded him to for rescue. God's patiently reaffirmed that it's his presence and strength with Gideon that will win the battle. And still Gideon balks, asking the Lord, would you please give me a sign if I've truly... Hear that doubt? Truly. Are you true, God? Truly found favor with the Lord. Gideon's having an identity crisis. What do you do when God calls you mighty man or woman of valor and you believe yourself to be weak? What do you do when God calls you a name that you don't believe to be true about yourself? That's an identity crisis. And that's the choice that faced Gideon, and it's the choice that faced David, the young shepherd boy whom God said of king. King over my people. Am I really a king? I don't feel like a king. I feel like a shepherd boy. I'm really young. I've never led. But you say... I'm a king? Faced Peter, the leader who crumbled under pressure, but whom Jesus called the rock upon whom I'll build my church. Am I really a rock? I don't feel like a rock. I crumbled. But God called me a rock. I crumbled. But he said I'd be strong, I'd be a rock, and he'd build his church on me. Choice faces Gideon, David, Peter, you, and me, and every one of us who follows Jesus Christ. Will we trust the names that God calls us? The identity that he gives us. Will we trust in and build our lives upon what God says is true about you and me? So we sin daily. We sin daily against God in thought, in speech, in actions, in inactions, and yet God looks on us through Christ and He says, Saint, Holy One, me? Me? A saint? A holy one? We're guilty of sin. We're Guilty as charged, our dark thoughts, our secret sinful longings, our spiritual laziness, they all scream, guilty as charged. And yet, he looks on us through our faith in Christ and he pronounces, free, not condemned, forgiven, white, pure, holy, Saint, me, this is the gospel, friends, that God calls us names that we don't deserve, that God gives us whole new identities in Christ because of who he is, because of his love and his goodness and of the overflow of his grace. In fact, the gospel tells us that Jesus took on our old identities so that we could have his identity. Paul writes, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the one who'd never once thought, uttered, 
or acted in any way that was less than pure. He became sin. He became a sin offering. He became that rebellion against God, that pride, that every way that we don't measure up. He took on our identity so that we could receive His identity. Righteous, pure, dearly loved children. It's like this divine exchange. It's like an identity swap that comes with more new names than we could dare to imagine. And so now God shouts out over us new creations. He speaks that word, new creations. He whispers, beloved. He sings over us, redeemed, delighted in. He names us, watched over, protected ones, provided for ones, the never abandoned, never alone ones. We are the cannot be separated from the love of God ones. Just as he named Gideon, mighty man of valor, he calls us royal priesthood. That's an identity statement. That he says, right now, you reign with me. I am king of kings and lord of lords. I am rightful ruler of this world. I have brought my kingdom and I will bring my kingdom. I am reigning. I conquered sin and death by my own death and resurrection. I am king. And you reign with me. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we're already, not 10, 2.6, we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Royal priesthood. That we share in his authority. We share in his reign. And as priests, we're to mediate that reign all across our lives, wherever we go. Jesus says to us, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world I had to reread that one when I was prepping for the sermon. I thought, John says, Jesus is the light of the world. But Jesus says in Matthew, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. He also says, you're the workmanship of God. You're my co-workers. You are ministers of reconciliation. You are chosen. You are appointed a sign to go and bear fruit. And even though all of these names that I've just read is just scratching the surface of what God calls us, if we really listen to God and really believe what He's saying or try to believe, I think it can produce a crisis in us similar to the one in Gideon because we look at our own hearts and our own lives and we wonder, can this really be true? I don't feel that new I often, if I'm honest, don't feel deeply loved. I regularly feel alone. I I don't always know God's presence with me. I certainly don't see myself as the light of the world. What do I do with all these names that God calls me? How do I respond to this identity that he gives me? Let's look back at Gideon. Gideon is shocked. Gideon's uncertain. And Gideon nearly falters 
asking repeated versions of, how can this be true? How can it be true? He's looking for sign after sign. But by God's grace, he extends his faith just a little bit. Jesus said, faith like a mustard seed moves a mountain. And it's like Gideon's just got that mustard seed of faith. And he takes God at his word and he believes him to be speaking the truth. Okay, God. Okay, I'll believe what you're calling me. I'll do what you're sending me to do. And as he exerts his faith, he allows God to use him to overturn the idols of his parents and of his town, and then eventually to lead a minute army of only 300 men from a mountaintop into a valley that had several hundred thousand armed enemies. And God wins the battle for him. So in the strength of God, he shows incredible valor, leading those men into the valley, and um, God's word comes to pass in the most astonishing of his ways. All of his enemies turn upon each other as God throws them into confusion, and then all Gideon's got to do is clean up. So I want us to notice this faith that comes by the grace of God. Faith leads Gideon from seeing and experiencing himself as small, weak, and insignificant. From that to stepping into the character and the calling or the identity that God gave him. A mighty man of valor who works with God to defeat his enemies. And what brought that transition? Faith. Taking God at his word. Friends, I wonder what names God has for each of us. I wonder what transformation God desires to bring about in each of our identities. I wonder what God desires to do through our lives to advance his kingdom. Anne shared with me this week the story of an acquaintance of hers, a young mother who was uh, struggling deeply in her parenting. And uh, the mom was struggling with anger and was really ashamed and frustrated with herself. And she was with a friend, and when uh, her friend asked her, how do you see yourself, she blurted out, rage. I just, I'm so angry. I just see myself as full of rage. And then this friend, this person who was listening to her said, I want to invite you to ask the Lord to share how he sees you. And so the woman accepted And a number of minutes later, after some prolonged silence, she sensed the Lord calling her gentle one. And everything in her wanted to revolt and argue and say it's not true and point at her actions. But she knew that it had been spoken by the Lord. And so she exerted that little bit of that mustard seed of faith and she said, Lord, if you call me gentle one, if this is how you see me, I'll pray 
and I'll trust and I'll let you change me into a gentle one. And every time the anxiety started to rise and the anger started to threaten to take over, then there was this whisper of love. Gentle one. Gentle one. And slowly on, she began to yield to the name that God had given her. Slowly on, she began not only to believe, but to become what God had called her. And so friends, I wonder what names we've given ourselves as we've looked at the things that we can see. Gideon looked at his weakness and named himself small, weak, and insignificant. This woman looked at the fruit of anger and named herself rage. I wonder where we've looked at or assumed identities, built senses of self based on how other people have viewed us, what they've spoken to us, where we've seen ourselves fall short, where the devil is accusing us. I wonder what we've assumed and taken on that God desires to replace with his names. I want you to hear this really good news. You are not destined to be what you've always struggled with in how you've always seen yourself. You are called to be what God names you. You are called to do what God calls you to do. And so this morning, the Lord is inviting us to enter into a season of rebuilding, of deepening, of grounding, rooting our whole sense of who we are as people. Our very lives in what he calls us. Beautiful, kind, warrior, gentle, significant. When God calls us a name, he always makes the grace available to believe him. He always gives what's necessary to reach out and to take hold of that new name and that new identity. And so I'd like to close this morning's sermon by just taking a few minutes to be silent before the Lord and to ask, Lord, would you show me what are things that I have believed about myself that have not only not been true, but have stood in the way of your purpose, your calling in my life? What are ways of thinking and believing that you would like to replace? And Lord, what do you say about me? I want to say before we enter that time that I am fully aware that three or four or five minutes or however many minutes we spend is not enough. That we need to spend many minutes in the word of God, letting God show us what we've believed and letting God replace that with the truth of what he says. So this is a beginning. This is an entry point for a number of us. And I want to just offer one way of reminding or remembering the things that God speaks. This is a rock. Rocks are often used in scripture. Stones of remembrance. 
is uh, are, are things that are often used in the Old Testament to, to remind the people of God of things that God has done. And uh, they can be used to remind us of things that God's spoken. So here's an identity that I've had um, and oh, a sin that I've struggled with in a way that I've labeled myself. And if you can't see the word, it says critical. I can be sharp and painfully impatient. And um, I can be that not only with others, but especially so with myself as I see myself do that with others. And the Lord says to me, kind, you're kind. And um, that is growing to shape who I am. And so when I write that out and put this underneath, it's like it's buried. That old identity is buried with Jesus Christ. A new one has risen. And I want to end there with this reminder that it's all through Christ. That when, when God looked on Gideon and ascribed to him strength, it wasn't because he was naturally a strong man. It was because God had strength that he gifted to Gideon. So again, whenever God calls us something, he gifts us that very thing he calls us in and through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ is the one who, in whom all things hold together the one who's sufficient for all things, the one whom Paul says of my God is able to make all grace abound to you, is able to meet all of your needs in proportion to or according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So this new identity, including the names and the callings that God has for us, all come through Christ Let's take a couple of minutes now and ask the Lord, Lord, how have we seen ourselves? What names have we taken on? Would you just speak to us and would you show us? And then, Lord, would you replace those names with words from your word?